Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of the Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by fly fishing guru, Kevin Howell. Kevin shares his experiences growing up and fishing in Western North Carolina, the backstory of Davidson River Outfitters, and all the details for DRO's 30th anniversary celebration. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a shout out to this episode's sponsor. Our friends at Southern Culture on the Fly recently dropped their spring issue. You can check it out and all of the other skullduggery at www.southerncultureonthefly.com. Rumor has it there's even new merch. Head on over there today. Now, on to our interview. Well, Kevin, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks, Marvin. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always like to ask our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Earliest fishing memory? Boy, um, I would say I was probably three, four years old and remember catching bluegill with my father out of uh, a neighborhood farm pond on a on a fly. Yeah. And it's funny too, right? Because you come from a pretty famous fly fishing family. Did you always fly fish or is that something that you sort of had to come to a little bit later on in your fishing career? Um, well, and, and I do come from a, a pretty good lineage of fly fishing uh, background there, but my father also was a huge bass angler, which a lot of people don't know, and won the the United Bass Fisherman Classic uh, back in 1976. And and so I grew up uh, equally uh, fly fishing rod in one hand and casting and spinning gear and bass fishing in the other hand. So uh, uh, we would bass fish all the way through until uh, end of April first of may and then we started trout fishing and that went until deer season and then deer season went to the time to go to back to bass fishing so that's <laughs> how i grew up did you have to sprinkle in any turkey hunting in the spring no fortunately i, I never got into that because my wife says i need just one more hobby to really you know not be around the house so. <laughs> yeah my experience is that that could uh, i think ruin you more than even saltwater fishing could uh, probably, and that's ruined me enough. So yeah. <laughs> we'll leave the turkey hunting yeah. to the experts. Yeah. So. <laughs> and so I think the interesting thing is, you know, you and I are kind of of a similar vintage, and I was really kind of curious, you know, what was it like growing up in a fly fishing and fishing family in the 70s and the 80s, and there was no internet, and everyone hadn't gone nuts over a river runs through it. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I grew up at a in a time when – the green drakes were still prevalent on the Davidson and other area streams. And, and, you know, I can remember going to fish the green drake hatch on the Davidson and there'd be four anglers, five anglers there. And I was related to three of them. So, you know, you'd see three or four other guys, you know, all evening. And, and now if there's a halfway decent hatch of any kind, you, you have to take your own rock to stand on. So, um, it was, it was unique to grow up in a time when, when you know it was literally very few people in the sport but then at the same time we didn't have the technology and the leaders and the, um you know i remember wet wading as a kid in the 70s and 80s when um you know you'd start wet wading in march or april and 
freezing absolutely to death. And now I'm kind of thankful I've, I've got those waders. So, yeah. But back when uh, wet waiting probably meant wearing a pair of cutoff jeans and a pair of Chuck Taylors, right? Uh, that or, uh, my father and uncle buy old Vietnam era combat boots and grind the soles off and glue felt to them to, to have traction. So, <laughs> It, yeah. And so I know your your dad and your uncle had a shop. Did you was that part of your growing up too, or did that kind of come later? Sure, yeah. They they had Dwight and Don's custom tackle and and I asked them why they never had a storefront. And they did for a little while in my father's basement. They would uh they would um sell fly time material and stuff, but they they quickly got rid of that because they said it tied them down and they had to be there and have have hours instead of being on the streams and, you know, filling orders or whatever when when they could or wanted to and and fish when they wanted to. So um, I grew up, you know, tying flies for them. By the time I was 13, I was tying commercially um, for a lot of shops around the area and everything. So it was quite the experience to grow up and, you know, be producing flies at that age and, and seeing them go into other stores and see your flies there that you'd produced. Yeah, that's, that's pretty neat. And I know your dad and your uncle were really important mentors to you, but you know, who are some of the other folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what have they taught you? Uh, boy, that list is long. Um, you know, one thing about fly fishing is, is when you quit learning, I think you're done fly fishing. So there's always somebody or someone to, to teach you stuff and, um, I'm really good friends with Bob Clouser. Uh, have gotten to be over the years and Bob taught me a lot about, um, tying simplistic designs and, and using materials that, that make you, uh, make the flies have a little more life in them, you know, a little more swimmy or, or just a little more lifelike, uh, but, you know, keeping them simple at the same time where you could, um, tie them quickly and replace them and, uh, if some client lost them, it wasn't the end of the world and you could go on and, you know, Lefty taught me a lot about casting and that kind of stuff. So they were both great mentors, but, you know, even my clients just being out there with them and watching stuff they do and seeing what works or, or may not work and learning from that. And then in a lot of my travels to South America and Alaska and other stuff, you learn from guides and other locations that, Hey, this, they do stuff this way and, and that may make it better or worse or, or, uh, you know, you learn little tips and techniques from them too. So really, you know, Bob Clouds or lefty huge mentors for me, but uh, really everybody I've come in contact with down the, down the line of my fishing career has really helped influence me to where I am today. Yeah. That's neat. It's funny too. Cause you know, there's the, um, the fish TV, uh, internet television service and they have like all of those like 1980s and 1990s vhs tapes that bob and lefty did together it's kind of cool to watch those it is and, and old school and and you know it's a lot of people say oh well that's old it doesn't work and i'm here to tell you as a guy it works just as good today as it did back then so yeah it's neat too to see me i remember watching the one relatively recently just it's literally i think an hour and a half on just the clouser minnow and, um, yeah. and I mean, just to listen to him talk about the proportions and how he likes to fish it and the variations was just super cool. Yeah. And, and, 
you know, the proportions and where the eyes go influences how it falls, which will influence how the fish will hit it and if they'll hit it or won't hit it. So yeah, a lot to be said for, for, you know, learning from those guys that spent so much time on the water. And, you know, that's going back to what you asked a minute ago about, you know, being there before the technology is, you know, in the seventies and eighties, you, it was trial and error. You tried it. If it worked, you, you improved and worked and tweaked on it. And, you know, now a lot of stuff you can get online and find and whatever, and people aren't having to make that trial and error um, discovery. Yeah. I think it's interesting, right? Cause I mean, you know, there, there wasn't any YouTube and to your point, you had to figure it out. And a lot of times it was really hard to get materials. And I mean, I can remember as a kid, you know, getting, uh, getting like newsletters that people literally like ran off a bajillion copies and like put a sticker with your name on it and send it, put it in the mail to you. Yeah. And, you know, we were buying materials from, from uh, wholesale feather, uh, feather companies. And, you know, there wasn't a fly tying company down the street. So when you bought black saddle feathers, you bought a pound of them. And let me tell you, a pound of black saddle feathers goes a long way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not to mention that's even after you throw away half of them, right? (laughs) That's right. So, you know, as you mentioned, you've been really fortunate uh, to travel all over the world to fish. And I was kind of curious if you had one particular place uh, or one particular trip that kind of stood out more than any others. Um, you know, for me, there's, there's two places. Um, I, I do a lot of stuff in the Canadian shield for smallmouth bass and, um, that area up there. I just, I love it. It's remote. Um, you know, it's one place my cell phone doesn't work. <laughs> so it gets me back to those, those times, you know, when I grew up of, you know, trial and error discovery and you can't find it all on the internet and all that. Um, so I really, really enjoy my time up there and I go up every year and spend, you know, one to two weeks up there, smallmouth fishing. And then um, my other favorite place, Argentina, definitely has a, a spot in my heart where, um, you know, lots of nice brown trout and rainbow trout. Fishing's good. And again, not a lot of pressure and people. and um, Just a place I really enjoy being. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I know you, I don't, I imagine you still work with the guys at Andy's Drifters, which I guess is now set. And, um, I can remember going to Argentina with them probably in 2006 or seven and running into Gustavo this past year on the fly fishing show circuit and catching up, which was really neat. Yeah. Yeah. I was a uh, partner with Gustavo for many years and, uh, they, they had the opportunity to grow and move on to set, which was wonderful. And, uh, they've done that and, and uh, I still go down and, and spend my time down there with them and, and other friends, you know, that I've made down there over the years. So, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not probably, probably will never Dorado fish, but the trout fishing is pretty good. Oh, the trout fishing is phenomenal. People, people ask what it's like and you, you can't explain it. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like talking about the dove hunting down there where it's like, well, how many birds do you shoot? And it's like, well, how much do you want to pay for shotgun shells is really the question. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so Kevin, when did you realize that you wanted to make your living in fishing? Um, you know, I was probably, I don't know, 10, 12 years old and, you know, you'd get the get outdoor life and you'd see all those guys, Ted Williams and all those guys that were fishing and, you know, they were professional guides or professional fishermen. And, you know, you'd see, um, 
uh, you know, other shows like Flip Pallet, the Walker's K Chronicles, you know, when we grew up and all that. And uh, I knew from that age on, I'm like, man, I, I want to figure out how I can fish for a living. Cause that's what I love doing. And, and, uh, so yeah, I fished, uh, much as I could, you know, went off, got an engineering degree and, and designed some houses and stuff for a little while and taught some architecture classes and decided that, you know, I was a lot happier when I was fishing. So I went back to fishing. There you go. So when did you start guiding? Um, I got it a little bit for my father and uncle in, in the late eighties, early nineties. And then in 96, I started uh, guiding full time um, for Davidson River Outfitters. Very neat. And so what was the guide community like back then and kind of like the late eighties and into the nineties? So when I first started guiding, um, in the Western 23 counties of North Carolina that have trout, there were 40 licensed hunting and fishing guides. And some of those were hunting and some were fishing, but, but there were 40 licensed guides when I, the first year when I was, um, guiding and stuff and now we don't i don't know exactly what the number is but we estimate that there's like uh 500 or something in these western 23 counties so yowch um yeah so what was it growth. yeah so what was it like i mean so like legitimately you could probably uh go have beers with you know a third to half of the guides in western north carolina when you started out you know, what was it like to be able to kind of get together with kind of the, you know, kind of the original guys, really? Sure. Yeah. You know, there, there was, uh, myself and, uh, and Mac Brown, Roger Lowe. Um, we were really some of the, the first ones over here, Walker Parrott. And, you know, we, like you said, we could call each other and say, Hey man, you want to meet for lunch or dinner or or a beer or whatever in the off season. And, you know, we'd all sit around and talk about what was good and what was bad. And, you know, if we were seeing trends on a certain river, you know, we'd all kind of help each other out. And, you know, now I know, I know a lot of the guides in the state, but I don't know. I wouldn't claim to know half of them. Yeah. Um, I, I do know, you know, probably a hundred, 150, but, that's not even half of what we're talking about. So, yeah. You know, other than numbers, you know, how have you seen the guide game evolve over the years? Um, you know, I really have seen a change in the guide game to the guides were all about teaching and, and the experience and making people or helping people understand, you know, why fish did what they did or, or why you should fish here or why you shouldn't fish here and, you know, understanding hatches and, um, all the nuances of it. And today it seems it's just, uh, you know, Hey, I want to go catch fish. It doesn't matter how, I don't care what I learn about it. And, and so I've seen that change in the guides of, they don't teach and they don't educate as much as they used to. And, and, you know, they're more about, uh, more about just, putting fish on a internet for somebody to admire or whatever. So um, I'd say that's been a, one of the biggest changes, um, which I hate because I, I really think, you know, everybody getting into it needs to understand some of the basics. And, and I'm not sure that, you know, that's all being taught to them. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Cause I think, you know, it's been pretty consistent. I've kind of always followed that recreational boating and fishing foundation study and pretty consistently, probably somewhere between, 
you know, 45 and 50% of the people that fly fish a year only fish one to three days. So it makes it kind of hard. It, it does make it hard. And, and, you know, we see that all the time and people will come in the shop and, and they fish for, you know, two days, three days, four days, maybe even a week while they're here. And then we'll see them a year later and they're like, yep, I hadn't fished since I saw you last year. And, and it makes it harder for them, you know, for the casting and everything, but it also, you know, um, slows down, you know, some of the learning process. You can't teach them to cast if they don't go home and practice it a little bit or something like that. So, um, it, it, it makes it, interesting for sure yeah it's interesting too right because you know back to kind of uh, what we were talking about about kind of the way we learned about sports and things you know i think now younger generations like to have more different experiences than as opposed to having one or two things that they do a lot sure yes yeah i I would agree you know and a lot of people want a lot of people because of cell phones or whatever also want instant gratification and um, as you and I know from growing up, you know, boy, some days you, you struggle to catch a fish and, and that's not instant gratification at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Or you tell your mom you're bored and she puts a broom in your hand. I'll take care of it too. Exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so was sort of these trends that you were seeing, Kevin, was that what made you want to start the North Carolina guide and outfitters association? Sure. You know, what we were seeing, and again, it comes back to those of us that, that talk to each other and everything. We we were seeing guides that were unsafe rowing people down the river. Like, you know, you're like, oh, wow, look, they're going to crash and dump that person out. And they would. And, and you know, you'd see uh, other stuff going on. And we're like, we just need to kind of get some professionalism uh, back in this. and and be sure that the guides are all have first aid and CPR and, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, we really wanted to make it just a more professional group of individuals. And the other thing is when you tell, um, somebody that you're a fishing guide down at the insurance commission and, Hey, I want to get insurance. Then they put you on a crab boat in the Bering sea. Cause you said fishing and, um, you know, we're not nearly that dangerous, uh, of an occupation. So, um, if we can unite and be a little more professional, then we can get better insurance rates and stuff for, for the guides across the state. So, yeah. um, and then we want to also educate, get back to some of that education and we want to offer that to, to clients and stuff throughout the, the state. So, yeah. And it's interesting too, cause folks may not understand this, but like out West guiding is heavily regulated, right? Whether it's a, mm-hmm. Yeah, outfitter guide system, but I think basically North Carolina, you just have to have $35, right? Uh, well, if you're a resident of North Carolina, it's a $16 guide license, and um, there's no prerequisites to first aid, CPR, anything. And and for that $16, I'm a licensed hunt fish guide, so I can take firearms and guide somebody hunting just as easily as I can take somebody and hand them a rod and and go fishing and um so we're we're trying to get that separated where you're either a hunting guide or a fishing guide and that'll you know like you said we're not trying to over regulate or get rid of anybody we're just trying to make it a, a little more professional a little more respectable uh community of people that are that are watching out for resources and each other yeah it's interesting because i mean i've been fortunate to fish a lot of places out west and i've never 
thought that the way that they regulated outfitters and guides was obtrusive. It was really kind of the stuff you're talking about. Like, you know, somebody knows where you're fishing. If we're recording days to kind of manage fishing pressure, that's happening. And there's some insurance and a little bit of safety, right? Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more pressure here. So, you know, as a, as an angler, if I'm not a guide, if I take myself out of that and I ask myself, well, gee, um, I want to go fish the Davidson today and I roll in there and there's 35 guides up there. Well, that kind of, you know, really makes a burden on me to go find fish and do that kind of stuff. So, um, we're kind of thinking the same thing, like you said, of, you know, how many guides should be on this river with clients this day and, um, trying to get some of that so that the anglers have more opportunities or equal opportunities if they're not being guided. Yeah. And I guess, you know, people that haven't fished out West ought to feel lucky because, you know, either we'll figure that out for ourselves or they're going to, somebody's going to tell us. Cause I mean, you know, literally like in Montana, it's like, this is how many days you get to float this river. Right. Exactly. And, and that's where we were at as guides is we're like, look, we would much rather come in here and, and regulate and control ourselves instead of somebody sitting in a cubicle somewhere going, uh, no, this is the way you're going to do it. Yeah. So who may not be a fisherman, you know? Yeah. But I also think too, it's great because I think it's hard where, um, you know, obviously, you know, you can go through a shop like yours or some of the other ones in the area, but you know, for the most part, you know, guide trips are generally cost about the same. So it's really hard for the consumer to kind of figure out who they should go fish with. Right. Right. And, um, you know, we want to, we want to provide a, a resource for those customers that, you know, you can look this person up and see that they're licensed by the, by the guides association and have all their first aid and CPR and that kind of stuff. Or, um, you know, maybe this person doesn't and we see a lot of um guys that drift in you know hand out business cards and oh i'm a guide and they don't have any insurance or paying any forest service fees and see a lot of people don't realize that as a guide when we got in pisgah or nantahala or whatever national forest that a percentage of our trip gets paid directly to the forest to maintain the the trails and the the fishery or the streamside restoration or whatever so um, you know, off every trip, we're paying a portion of that and you get somebody who comes in who isn't paying that, but they're still abusing the resource. Then that's when we're like, all right, look, we, we need to all help the resource. That's how we make our living. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And so how are you, I mean, do people kind of sign up and pay a fee? How are you kind of delivering services to your members? Yeah. So we're, we're really, like you said, we're just getting started and, um, you know, our big thing right now is I'm working um, trying to get some legislation through to uh, to get the hunt fish guide separated to a hunting guide or a fishing guide, and and uh, we'll be having another big meeting in September um, of all the guides uh, across Western North Carolina that want to participate, and and uh, so they can either email me directly or email uh, Jessica Whitmire at at Headwaters or the Tuck Fly Shop. Uh, most of the fly shops will have Matt Canner at Brookings. Um, we're all part of it and can get them in touch and keep them in touch for when the next meeting is going to be. Uh, got it. And what I'll do is I'll drop that in the show notes so people can, uh, can find you and send you an email and not miss out. 
Okay. I appreciate that. You bet. And so, you know, most people know you as the owner of Davidson River Outfitters, but you haven't always owned the shop. You want to kind of share with our listeners how you came to be the owner? Sure. So, um, you know, like, like we were talking earlier, I grew up in a fishing family and, and knew it was something I wanted to do. And, and I was working as an engineer and stuff. And my father was battling uh, colon cancer for a second time. And I was helping him run his fly custom fly tying business and, and doing engineering work. And, um, I had the opportunity, the guy who, who owned the shop, Larry Hall came to my father and said, Hey, do you want to manage it? And he said, no, said, um, you know, I'm, I'm going through this battle with cancer and I don't know from day to day if, you know, how good I'm going to feel. And so I went to Larry and I said, look, I'm willing to, to manage it for you. If you'll let me set my schedule. So we, on the days I think dad's going to feel good, I can go fishing with him. And when I'm done, I'll sit in the back. You know, other than the responsibilities at the shop, I'll sit in the back and tie tie flies to help him out. And he's like, that'll be fine. And so um, that's how I got started there in, in 95 and, and 96. And um, the shop at that point in time was open three days a week, um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And we slowly started to expand, you know, with me managing it. And, and I was doing most of the guiding, had one other fellow helping me. and. And uh, we did all of like 50 guide trips in 96. And uh, this year we'll do about 3,000. So we've had a, a little bit of growth there. But, um, uh, you know, I came to, came to it that way. And then when my father passed away and, in 98 and Larry's mother was really sick, uh, Larry came to me and wanted to know if I wanted to purchase the shop. So I purchased it in 98. I've been there ever since. Yeah. And is it always been on that same corner? I mean, I know it's been a while since you built the new location on that corner heading into Pisgah, but has it always been there? No, we, we were across the street, um, on the Hendersonville highway side of the intersection for the first four or five years. And then we came into the, the little plaza where we're at now. We were there on the, the opposite corner where the little carpet store is at now. And, we had seven foot ceilings and nine foot fly rods. So that was a, an interesting uh, predicament. We ended up cutting holes in the ceiling where the rods could stick up through the ceiling to uh, allow the nine foot rods in there. And um, so we did that. And then we were over beside the barbecue restaurant for a handful of years. And then, like you said, had the opportunity to move where we're at now and, and expand and, uh, plan on being there for a while yeah so. well the in the i guess the quote new space is super neat because you kind of built it out obviously the way you want it it's got nice educational space and um i highly recommend the brewery and the barbecue is not too bad either so yeah exactly <laughs> so uh for folks that aren't familiar why don't you kind of tell us um because you do a lot at the shop uh, other than just kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of what people think about a fly shop, you want to kind of share with folks all the stuff you do from travel to guide trips and in and out of the Pisgah and all that kind of good stuff. Sure. So, um, you know, first we run a, a, a huge guide operation, have uh, 12 guides working out of there. Um, and we run that 24 seven, well, not 24 seven, but we run it seven days a week and, and, year round um 
summertime, we transition a little more to smallmouth bass to give the, the trout a break in the heat of the summer and um, do trout all year or, you know, the other part of the year or majority of the year. And uh, we got half-day wade trips, full-day wade trips on public or private water. Um, we got float trips for trout or for smallmouth bass or for muskie. Um, so we have all those species covered. And then uh, on an educational front, we do a lot of what we call 101 and 201 classes, which are just, hey, I've never held a fly rod before. I want to learn. So we do a lot of those. And then we do a lot of specialized classes. Um, one thing about my staff is I have a very diverse um, staff that has a guy who, Jeb Hall, who's a exceptional spay caster and an exceptional fly tying instructor. Um, we have a Tinkara expert. We have Euronymphing experts. Um, we have uh, myself, who's a certified casting instructor. Um, so we do all the educational stuff we can. I even teach rod building classes um, in the wintertime. So we have that going as well. And I got my start in the in the industry tying flies and building rods. So we have what I hope to be is one of the largest fly tying departments in, in uh, the Southeast here where you can find any type of material that you need um, in there when you tie flies. And then we run all the fly tying classes and different, different types of classes for that. And then in addition to that, we do a lot of destination and worldwide travel, um, we do trips to Montana, Bahamas, Argentina, Mexico. Um, I'm opening stuff up in Brazil. I'm going down to a new fishery this year in January. And we'll have that up for 2024. It'll be a new option. Um, so, yeah, do a lot of lot of travel stuff as well. Uh, yeah, it's neat, too. And it's amazing because I didn't realize until I started talking to some of the guys in the shop that, I guess, given how mild our climate is, I mean, these guys – they got a ton of days a year. Like, I mean, they've got probably twice as many days as a lot of guys in Montana and places like that. Yeah. So, you know, Argentina, Montana, Alaska, those guys have a 120 to a 180 day season and that's it. You know, you're done. And with our climate here, most of my guys average 200 um, days a year on the water to, to 225, 250 um, we found if you do more than about 225 or 250, you just get a little too surly to <laughs> to be around. So we we really try and limit it to, to 200 or 225 days a year. Yeah. So. And I think, too, you know, for folks that haven't fished it, I think, you know, your private water is really great. And I think one of the things I really like about it, Kevin, is it's not like some of the other places where people have private water where, you know, the fish are all pelleted up. I mean, these are fish that – are still pretty technical and hard to catch. Sure. They're, they're Davidson fish and we manage it for access and, and we do stock it, you know, once or twice as needed to replace whatever we feel may have been lost or killed by mishandling or otters or beavers or predation, whatever, you know, whatever caused it. And, um, but we like to have it in a natural setting as possible. And, and not to have everybody out there throwing, you know, cork pellet flies at them and that kind of stuff. So. <laughs> we won't make fun of any of our friends in North Georgia. 
<laughs> no. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know, I think a lot of people kind of in our part of the world are familiar with the Davidson. They're familiar with the mills, but there are just a ton of places to fish uh, around your shop. You want to share some of the other places folks may not know about? Sure. You know, the, all of the upper stretches, um, the North Fork, East Fork, West Fork, all have great trout fishing opportunities, um, places like Courthouse Creek, uh, West Fork of the Pigeon River, um, Drainage, the Big East Fork of the Pigeon, just across the, the mountain there on 276 from us. Um, another great fishery, uh, Lean Glass Creek and and all the tributaries of the Davison, um, all those are, are exceptional fisheries. Yeah. And it's great too. Cause you know, it's, it's funny. It's a little bit of an extra drive for me. So I usually like to, when I come fish uh, around Brevard, I usually try to come for two days and you've got a Hampton Inn just across the street. And then you got a bunch of, uh, hotels up in Fletcher and, you know, I don't know. I always tell people to go up there and, uh, they owe it to themselves, at least have one or two beers at Sierra Nevada too. Yeah. Sierra Nevada. And then of course we got Oscar Blues Brewery right in town and and like you said, Acoustic Brewing um, earlier, and we now have a place called Pilot right across from the shop there. It has some really nice uh, rental cabins, and, you know, you can come get you a cabin for a long weekend or whatever, and stay right there on next to the river and fish and enjoy. Yeah, and so the super neat thing is on June 10th, you guys are going to be celebrating your 30th anniversary. What do you have planned for folks, Kevin? uh that's right so 30 years in the fly fishing industry so we're we got a huge day planned um we have uh staff coming in from grundons um with their new waiters uh from corporate grundons will be here as, as well as their sales representatives uh, to talk about their waiters and what makes them different and new to the market and and what their goals are with those and uh then we have uh spay casting with jeb we have free class in that we have a free tin car class with landon um rob lily's gonna do a free euro nymphing class in the afternoon um i'll be doing some fly tying along with bob clouser uh we'll be there for a couple hours doing some fly tying demos and and that kind of stuff and then our our big uh event is we're having a freaky fly tying contest and uh, everybody's like well what is a freaky fly tying contest and it's all in fun. Um, we're going to supply some strange, weird, exotic materials and see what kind of flies get produced out of them. And, uh, you know, whoever wins will win a big, uh, a big prize pack supplied by Semperfly. And then we got some hackles from uh, Hairline and other places. So a lot of fly time material to be given away to those participants in that. Uh, freaky fly tying contest so um that's going to be out there we've got free lunch free beer um food drink all that good stuff and uh leslie holmes will be there doing casting from g loomis um so yeah it's going to be a huge day june the 10th so swing on by and and enjoy the day with us yeah and so it, and what time does it start uh, so we're going to open our normal eight o'clock time, but most of the other stuff will get started at nine. Gotcha. So, and so if people want to do the classes, I know they're free, but do they need to sign up in advance or do they just show up? No, the classes, they just need to show up. They can go to our website, davidsonflyfishing.com. And we got a schedule of when everything is. 
the only thing that you need to sign up for is the fly tying contest because we have um, like eight vices to use at a time. So we're going to rotate people through in groups of eight. So we just need them to sign up so we can orchestrate how many groups of eight we need to, to move through there. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. And obviously I do folks need to bring boots and waiters uh, if they're going to do like a spay casting class or are those going to be mostly demos sure. that they can watch from the bank. Um, you know, it, it never hurts. Throw them in. And, uh, the other thing I'll say is throw them in. You'll have them there for that. And then, Hey, when we're done, slide up in the forest and go fishing for a couple hours. So, well, there you go. And, uh, is there anything else, Kevin, you want to share with our listeners before you let you go this evening? Um, no, just, uh, just enjoy your time on the water. And, you know, if anybody ever has any questions, um, feel free to email me, call me. I'm, I've been here a long time and more than willing to help and share my knowledge. So, yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that, what's the best way for folks to kind of learn more about the shop and follow all of your fishing adventures on and off the water? So, uh, DavidsonFlyFishing.com is our website. And we've got a blog there as well as all of our website, e store, that kind of stuff. And then we have, you can find us on Instagram, Davidson. River Outfitters, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff on all the social media platforms. Well, there you go. And I'll drop all that stuff in the show notes too. Thank you. You betcha. And uh, Kevin, I really appreciate you spending some time with me this evening. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to make it your way on uh, June 10th. All right. Look forward to seeing you, Marvin. Take care. You too. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a rating and review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.